I've been intrigued really for almost all my career of what happened to the Democratic Party. When I was a child, the Democratic Party was the dominant party. It still was the party of Franklin Roosevelt and Harry Truman. That's Thomas Edsall, the refreshingly objective, affably erudite op-ed columnist for The New York Times with five decades of experience reporting and analyzing U.S. politics. But the rise of the conservative movement on the right and the decline of liberalism on the left have been a preoccupation of mine for 40 years or more even, I hate to admit. Half a century of hyperpartisanship has transformed both parties, and it's a privilege to have Thomas Edsall here to help explain that for us. This is The Purple Principle, a podcast about the perils of all that polarization. I'm Robert Pease. And another great privilege today, the introduction of our new co-host, Jillian Youngblood, former Hill staffer who also worked in the Bloomberg administration and currently serves as executive director of Civic Genius. This is a nonprofit promoting civic awareness and bipartisan problem solving. Jillian, great to have you back on the show, and this time for many episodes. Have I been officially promoted from the guest seat to the co-host chair? You have just uttered co-host speech, so that is now official. And perfect timing for this interview, Jillian, because I know you've read your share of Thomas Edsall over the years. Yeah, absolutely. He's one of the really great columnists out there today, and I've learned so much from reading him over the past decade. Then let's get right into it with Thomas Edsall, contributing op-ed writer for the New York Times, author of five books on U.S. politics, Columbia Journalism School professor, and national reporter for the Washington Post for 25 years prior to joining the New York Times. He's long on research, short on dogma, and hugely insightful with regard to partisanship and polarization. And that's indie music to the ears of Purple Principle listeners concerned about both parties, the dynamics between them, and our great big, somewhat shaky democracy. Thanks again. It's so great to meet you. I'm a longtime reader, first-time caller. So if I could just start by asking, you know, a lot of columnists are very clearly on the left, very clearly on the right. And to your credit, I have no idea. So I'm curious if you could just tell us a little bit about how you think of your audience, who you're writing for. Well, the New York Times audience is pretty liberal in that sense, so that I am writing for an audience that is to the left. And to some extent, but not entirely, I try to direct the column towards the problems that the left has. So our show is about polarization. You've written extensively about structural politics and the polarities between the left and the right. I'm thinking of one column where you said that the far left is the Republicans' greatest asset. Can you explain that dynamic a little bit? You can argue to a certain extent that the Republican Party has been the reactor to Democratic initiatives. The Democratic Party has become the party of rights. It has been that way since the civil rights movement, women's rights movement, really starting in the mid-60s. And sometimes Democrats go too far and push the envelope to a point that is not acceptable to the general public. And that's when the Republican Party can step in very effectively politically. I'm not talking about the morals, who's right or wrong. It gives the Republican Party a very effective tool to portray the Democratic Party and its candidates as people who go over the edge, who push things too far. So in that sense, 
woke Democrats who would push the Democratic Party quite far to the left are a real benefit to the Republican Party, giving them just what they need. Do you think that the flip side is also true? Is the far right a great asset to the left? Yeah, I mean, clearly Trump and the excesses he and his supporters have undertaken, particularly the denial of the truth of the past election, are going to be, I think, central issues in the the next few campaigns. We'll see whether or not that really tells. What's intriguing really is that a party that is delusional, the Republican Party at this point, could actually, and is the favored to win control of the House, and it's a 50-50 shot in the Senate. So you have a, 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 in a sense, the liabilities of the left with woke Democrats are as bad as much more serious liabilities on the right, where there's a real, both the denial of truth and acceptance of a lie and a growing willingness to accept authoritarian governance. They're not equivalent, but politically they can often become equivalent. It seems that identity is both cause and consequence of this polarization to some extent. And one thing that you wrote about pretty recently, a few months ago, that I really appreciated was a piece about how actually Americans have a lot of common ground on policy. You cited some data from Voice of the People, from Dr. Stephen Cole, who we've worked with before, who's been on the show, from More in Common, that wrote a really interesting report on this. And I'm curious, like, how do we get back to can we get back to or create a space where Americans can talk more about policy and less about identity? That's very hard. Once the problem is that people have enmeshed their identities in their partisanship. It's not just that you're a Democrat or Republican, but if you're a Democrat, you're also pro-choice. If you're a Republican, you're anti-abortion. You tend to be, if you're Orthodox, religious, you tend very much to be a Republican. If you're an atheist, you tend to be a Dem- quite strongly to be a Democrat. These divides have shaped people's views so that their whole sense of who they are gets wrapped up in being a Democrat or Republican. And when that happens, it turns the opposition into an enemy. So we're one of the few two-party systems in the world, and that kind of intrinsically promotes some of this polarization, I think. There's been some discussion, particularly from the never-Trump wing of the Republican Party, saying that it's time for a third party. We need one. There's no other way around this. And also, I think, from some more centrist Democrats and independents, do you think that that is quixotic? Do you think that a third party is possible here? I think that there certainly is room for a third party, and there are constituencies that could be brought together to form a third party. In a two-party system like we have, though, it's very hard to do that. The only people who've done it lately at all with even minimal success are people who are, one, very rich, and two, they have personalities that are very assertive. And the other problem is that for a third party to form... A presidential candidate can run as a third-party candidate, possibly like Ross Perot. He got 19% of the vote. But to be a real party, you got to have candidates up and down the line. 
You've got to have Senate candidates and House candidates. That's a much hard. It's a huge proposition to really do it as a party. We really structurally and in every way built for a two-party Democrat versus Republican system. Hold on, Jillian. I need a moment of deep depression regarding that point that we're pretty well stuck with our two-party system. Yeah, why don't you take a beat? But remember, there are factions within those parties. And that might be healthy if they knew how to compromise. Oh, you said the C word. Sometimes, though, they make a lot of noise on Twitter and then they quietly C word. Hmm, I'm, I'm not sure if that's encouraging or not. But hearing Edsall talk about those changes on the Democratic side over 40 to 50 years, we really have to call up some audio from our season one guest, Jeff Cabaservice. He's the widely respected historian at the Niskanen Center and author of Rule and Ruin on the Demise of Moderate Republicans. Well, moderate Republicanism took a nasty hit in 1964 when Barry Goldwater, the very conservative Arizona senator, became the GOP presidential nominee. And that was significant, not just because a conservative for the first time seized the nomination, but also because Barry Goldwater was one of the few Republican legislators in Congress to vote against the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And that had longstanding and permanent repercussions. But really, these problems became worse with Newt Gingrich in the 1994 election, and moderates have really been marginalized in the party at this point. Which is the odd thing, isn't it? The Republican Party moves right over time, opening up an opportunity for Democrats to possibly convert some moderate Republicans and maybe some right-leaning independents. But so many Democrats, particularly in the House, move even further left. It makes like zero sense. Until you think about the psychology of that situation and what we call affective polarization, which is another great element in Edsall columns, not just politics, but the psychology that makes seemingly mysterious policy positions so popular and so politically potent. Polarization is nothing if not complex. And I think we can safely say that today's guest, Thomas Edsall, is a great interpreter of that complexity and a major conduit between mainstream journalism and really important scholarship. You cite a lot in your writing, you cite a lot of academic research. And I'm wondering if you can think of a few of your favorite, relatively recent, really incisive studies from the past few years that you think Americans should familiarize themselves with. I think there's a woman who just moved from the University of Maryland to Johns Hopkins University, Liliana Mason, who has written about affective polarization. And I think she's really been a pioneer on that front. Once we are in a group, we think our group is the best, and we think that the other groups are less good. And if we're in competition with those groups, we begin to hate them. Although along with her, there's a Stanford scholar named Shanto Iyengar, who also has been a pioneer in this field. This is the field where instead of polarization by issues, they are finding polarization by personal animosity or support for your team and opposition to the other team, regardless of issues. Political attitudes are now characterized by this deep sense of ill will. The problem is that it has now spilled over. It is far, it, it extends far beyond the political domain. Party prejudice is now 
characterizing our daily interpersonal interactions. Their work has been breakthrough work. The same is true with Jonathan Haidt, who is now at the NYU School of Business, but he's a social psychologist. So the worst number of political parties to have in a country is one. Okay, that's terrible. But the second worst number is two, and that's what we have in the United States. He is tops in his field, but I'm really going to neglect people by doing this. There's another woman, Julie W-R-O-N-S-K-I, at the University of Mississippi, who, who has been very insightful about political animosity. This narrative, especially within American politics, is that authoritarianism works in our society because it splits people across the parties. And I really should mention also Ashley Jardina, J-A-R-D-I-N-A, at Duke, who really established the reemergence of white identity as a factor. What I'm interested in is understanding how many white Americans in the United States are responding to the U.S. becoming far more racially diverse than it was in the past. And so part of the phenomenon that I'm talking about and I'm uncovering is the fact that there are a sizable number of whites in the United States today who feel a sense of identity or attachment or solidarity with their racial group. And that solidarity matters for how they view the political world. In recent years, some whites have developed a sense of being white as opposed to just being the, the norm. And that was crucial to the emergence of Donald Trump. This idea of effective polarization became very important as a way to explain why this intense animosity to Democrats that emerged in white working class communities. Trump has provoked, well, he basically tapped into areas in people's psychology and makeup that had not been recognized as significant in many of these fields. It may seem odd to give him credit, but he really sort of lifted up the rock on America and showed that there were a lot of pretty strange bugs floating around that people had not been looking at. And they are big bugs. You can see it on the January 6th assault on the Capital, but also in this, there are millions of Republicans who believe the election was stolen despite all the evidence. Millions upon millions, tens of millions, really. And this is really an extraordinary phenomena. A whole party changed its point of view because Donald Trump arose and became the anti immigrant, anti free trade. The whole party shifted gears. The evangelical community, in effect, abandoned its requirements that its favored candidates live up to a high moral standard. As someone who's covered politics since really since the mid-60s, I hate to admit, it's just extraordinary to see this. This, uh, this is bigger than the Reagan revolution, and it's and it's may not be as big as the rights revolutions, the civil rights, women's rights, but it is a, a really significant development in America. And speaking of historic developments, another scholar you're probably familiar with is Dr. Keith Poole. He created the data on congressional floor votes throughout American history. That's now the UCLA Vote View database. 
And we have an important quote here from Dr. Poole in season one of the show. And we did that from 1789 all the way to the present day. But um, beginning roughly around the late 1990s and into the 2000s, the parties started separating to the point now where it's not really liberal conservative, it's just um, it's devolved into pure hatred of the other party. And I worry about the stability of our institutions because of that. So that's a data scientist talking about pure hatred, which is a little worrisome. Did that hit you about the same time it hit Dr. Poole in the late 1990s and the early 2000s? Well, I've depended on his work. He and a guy named Howard Rosenthal developed this thing, which is called DW Nominate, which measures the degree of polarization, especially in Congress, and it tracks how much Republicans in Congress move to the right and Democrats move to the left. And when Trump came along, they moved even faster to the left, so that there's been a sort of a counter pattern in the Democratic Party led by white liberals and fairly affluent white liberals moving sharply to the left, especially on cultural and racial issues. So the divide, or it's sort of who's to blame for the divide, it goes both ways. And it's not uh, one where it's solely Republicans moving to the right, it's one of also Democrats in recent years moving to the left. But Keith's work with Rosenthal is foundational. Well, this is uh, terrible statistics, but have we seen a tiny blip in the other direction recently? Are you surprised at all that the bipartisan infrastructure bill seems to be proceeding through the Senate? I am very surprised, to tell you the truth. And I don't understand the Republicans' strategy, especially McConnell's strategy, has been basically destroy anything Democratic at all costs, no matter what, sort of a universal nuclear policy whenever a Democratic bill comes, try to chop it off at the head as fast as you can. Just the kind of focused compromise that our colleagues have been hashing out could not contrast more sharply with the multi-trillion dollar reckless taxing and spending spree that Democrats hope to ram through on a party line vote later this year. I don't fully, I don't claim to understand why he's allowing this is because it is a big victory for Biden. And Biden, I think, as long as Biden can maintain some momentum in his agenda, which this action on this bill helps him do, he retains his centrality in the American political debate. And it increases his probability of being able to survive with the fewest possible losses in 2022 and perhaps go into 2024 and win, maybe. That's Thomas Edsall, veteran reporter on U.S. politics and longtime op-ed columnist for The New York Times. And like a lot of political observers, he was taken aback by the recent bipartisan vote in the Senate approving the $1 trillion infrastructure package, which has now moved on to the House for an Olympic-level tug-of-war. I can hear bridges and ports groaning even louder, but another interesting point 
Edsall speaks to is how polarizing identity politics can be, something we've heard from so many guests. And something we encounter all the time at Civic Genius. People can find common ground on policy, but sprinkle in some divisive identity dust. And that is when tribal hell breaks loose. So we asked Thomas Edsall about identity politics within that really broad Democratic Party he writes about, which stretches all the way from socialists to centrist pragmatists. What's interesting with the Democrats is that the moderating force among Democrats has turned out to be black Democrats. For years, centrist Democrats basically accused the party of moving too far to the left on racial issues. But now it turns out black Democrats, South Carolina Democrats, particularly in Jim Clyburn, most importantly, have been the force sort of restraining the Democratic Party on these woke issues, which are the ones that are much more problematic, and trying to keep the party on a more centrist, down-the-line economic and healthcare set of themes. I'm going to tell you something. I've been black a long time. I don't know of any black people that I've been with in politics who are comfortable with socialism. I don't know of a single African-American that want to defund the police. And they tell me that's not what they mean when they say it. Well, sound bites kill you. If that's not what you mean, don't say it. It turns out black Democrats are a force for moderation, not for extremism. And that's a big change. So going back to your very prescient book, 2006, Building Red America, you wrote, One reason the Democratic Party has so much difficulty making a populist appeal is it's structurally not a populist organization. It's dominated by well-educated, culturally liberal, liberal, relatively affluent white elite presiding over a rank and file that's 46% minority. That was 2005 or six or so. Do you think that is still the case today? Uh, It's even more so. I think, I've written a fair amount about this, that the Democratic Party which was known as the party of the working men and women back in the Franklin Roosevelt, Truman, Kennedy era, now really has become the party of the upscale, the party of the successful, not the party of the beleaguered and struggling, but the people who don't suffer the most. And that's created an alienation in the party, pushing voters of the working class away, and not just white working class, Hispanic and black voters who have some conservative leanings have been shifting away from the Democratic Party. And the Hispanic vote is very important, as the last election showed with the defeats of Democrats in Florida and South Texas, and an erosion of black support uh, really could threaten a lot of other districts and places. Around the same time you wrote about the Republicans, the GOP has developed a capacity to eke out victory by slim margins in a majority of closely contested elections. It's likely to continue this pattern. So in light of the 2020 elections where the blue wave was anticipated, you had a pandemic, you had a recession, you had an unpopular president, there was no blue wave. Could you say that yet again the GOP kind of eked out an unexpected victory? Well, I think the 2000, 
20 success of the Republican Party down the ticket was more due to Trump's unexpected appeal to a lot of voters who turned out in large numbers, much more than expected, and certainly much more than pollsters expected. In the long run, the Republican Party and the whole infrastructure that the Republican Party has, has received much more support from especially its donor base than the Democratic Party. In the Republican Party and the business community generally, there's been a real recognition that having Republican control of state governments, for example, and even city government or town governments, county governments, that can be very important in terms of reducing regulation, lower tax rates, diminishing the power of unions, all the things that Republicans want to get, and especially the business community for its bottom line wants to achieve. And Democrats have allowed this core infrastructure to decay and erode in a way that has hurt the party over time and has made it very basically weak. And you saw what happened in 2010 and 2014 when wave elections helping Republicans occurred. Republicans had this infrastructure in place and they won legislative seats, all kinds of down-ballot victories all across the country because they were positioned at the local level to win. So, Rob, some say that these days all politics is national. But in this case, whoever said all politics is local should probably say that again. And again, and again. But maybe there's something to the adage that the loudest liberals like to march around and chant while conservatives are building donor and voter networks. Well, I don't know if that's entirely fair to Democrats, but certainly those chants can get out ahead of many swing voters and promote some backlash. On that point, let's hear again from Jeff Cabaservice from that first season episode on party dynamics. You can also say that maybe the defund the police uh, slogan that so many progressives embraced this past summer proved to be determinative with at least some of these constituents in the swing districts who really do fear a return of the kind of levels of crime that we saw in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. In fact, if you look at the polls of African-American opinion, African-Americans are much more resistant to the defund the police slogan than are white liberals. So it could also be that this slogan backfired with some of the minority constituencies whom white Democratic liberals thought it would please. It's a zero-sum jungle out there. But okay, we've heard Thomas Sudsall speak a lot about the nature of the problems within both parties and between them. And we've heard some confirmation of that. But what about the solutions to those problems? What might turn the tide of polarization just a little bit? Let's hear Thomas Edsall address that question of yours, Jillian, and my own on whether indie-minded Americans could be part of the solution. If we could go back to polarization again, my favorite topic. There's so many contributing factors to polarization. We talk about gerrymandering, the division entrepreneurs, maybe I would call them, on social media and YouTube and certainly cable news. 
People talk about closed primaries in a lot of states are plurality elections, that you can win an election without the support of a majority of voters. I'm curious what you think is the first vital step we could take out of this toward a more kind of common ground sort of politics? Well, you know, I think even though the Republicans are sort of the aggressors in pushing the polarization issues because they work for them, the wedge issues of race, culture, and so forth have generally been ones that Republicans have found profitable on election day. I think the burden is on Democrats. To explain that, I think the Democrats remain a rational party, and the Republican Party has become an irrational party. If you want to preserve democracy, and democracy in a two-party system has very hard time surviving in a polarized context, the burden then falls on the rational party to do something to lessen it. And I think the Democratic Party should take steps to reduce the sense of threat that it poses to many Republicans, to just try to turn the temperature down. That's why the woke stuff that you hear actually turns the temperature up and makes people more anxious. This whole, the critical race theory debate, regardless of what you think is right or wrong. And I think one of the areas that is particularly worrisome to those who have shifted to the right are the protection of religious freedoms and the idea that liberal causes are going to require conservative religious people to adopt and perform everything in a hospital abortions or to allow abortions, for example, or the baker who didn't want to bake a cake that had two men on top. I think that the Democrats should back away from those issues for the moment. They can be absolutely supportive of gay rights, of abortion rights, but I think they need to be careful when people have deeply held religious views on these subjects, not to impose their values on them. The other big area is that a lot of Democratic, especially in the area of race, have put the costs of integration and the cost of correcting past injustices primarily on the least equipped of the whites. They have white working class voters are the ones who face the biggest burdens from affirmative action. And Democrats have to think about those much more consequentially. If they want to make changes in society, change always has costs. And they have to think about, one, recognizing that there are costs and trying much more to figure out who is bearing the burden of those costs. So lay off the little sisters of the poor. Yes. yes, If you want to win. We've talked a lot about Democrats and Republicans, but most of our listeners are probably independent or unaffiliated voters, and they do make up close to 40% of the American electorate. But they haven't done so well at electing independent legislators, as you know. There's only a few dozen out of 7,000 elected officials in the United States. We'd like to play a clip from one of them, Laura Sibelia, 
She's an independent member of the Vermont Assembly. I believe she's in her fourth term. You know, I'd like to say that I really understand the notion of organizing people, organizing ideas, organizing for funding, for moving ideas forward. So I get the idea of parties and I get the value of parties, but that's not me. And I think that there's value to having folks like me outside of the parties to kind of be the, I don't even know what we would call it, but um, the space in between. So we're seen as kind of unaffiliated brokers in the middle. So do you think we need more of these unaffiliated brokers in the middle in Washington? And do you think there's anyone currently trying to fill that role? Well, I think there could be many more, and I don't care if they're personally, if they're party members or if they're independents, but people who are fair-minded in their view and take a broader outlook both for their own constituency, but also for the state or national government, depending on which they represent. I think both, say, Democratic members and independent members of Congress and Republicans and independent, conservative-leaning independents would be who are free of orthodoxy and can make their decisions on realistic bases would be a very healthy process. We have now great pressure, especially on the right, but in both parties, to, if you are a member of the Democratic Party or Republican Party, to vote with your party. And I think that's an unhealthy process. Charlie Crist was a very popular Republican governor of Florida, but then when Obama came down Christ, I think, put his arm around Obama, and that became a fatal thing for him to do in the Republican primary, and Marco Rubio beat him in part because Christ was friendly to Obama. It was verboten to do that. I didn't leave the Republican Party. It left me. That's really a very dangerous point, but we're there. Well, last question, we ask all our guests to show a bit of purple, which means choosing one member of each party you have particular respect for, whether living or dead, who might be able to help in our polarized environment today. Well, one guy that I liked a lot when I covered him some was John Chafee of Rhode Island. The evolution of this legislation was notable not only for what we accomplished, but for how it was done. It was done in a bipartisan fashion. It shows what can and should be accomplished when we all work together. I covered him both while at the Providence Journal and then later in Congress. And I thought he was an impressive man in many respects. Another who comes to mind is someone who just died, Carl Levin, who I didn't cover that much, but I knew him a little. Many foresee a continuation of polarization and partisanship in the Senate and say that it's naive to suggest that the next Congress might come together, break out a gridlock, and accomplish great things. But I know the Senate can do better because I've seen it happen with my own eyes. And he was also, they both shared, he was a, Levin was a Democrat, 
Chafee was a Republican. I think they both shared this independence of spirit and a respect for the national interest and their larger obligation beyond party. So, Jillian, we could sure use a few more and maybe a few hundred more elected officials with those larger obligations. Larger than Twitter feeds and super PACs? That's a lot. But maybe we can take the slightest bit of solace from bipartisan action that we've seen recently, first on COVID relief and then again on infrastructure, at least in the Senate. Though typically there's even less bipartisanship in an election year, which is coming up frighteningly soon in 2022. And so much at play, the razor-thin Democratic majorities in both houses and a lot of state legislatures and governor seats as well. We learned from Thomas Edsall today that backlash can swing these elections, especially when Democrats push on those identity buttons. We also heard he currently views the Democrats as the sole rational party, thus having vital responsibility for turning down the heat on our discord. If you're not familiar with Thomas Edsall's writing, we encourage all of you to look for his New York Times column most every Wednesday. They're deeply honest, clearly written, and contain great summaries of some of the most important academic research out there on the roots of polarization. Next week, though, we're going to step away from mainstream journalism and academic research and into high school and middle school classrooms around the country, where the teaching of civics has eroded over the past few decades. This is a topic dear to us over at my day job with Civic Genius. There are a lot of efforts underway to better educate young Americans on civics, not just the mechanisms of government, but the importance of civic involvement of all kinds, whether it's volunteering, mentoring, and of course, voting. We'll speak with four different experts on this subject. Colonel Michael Moffat, a Republican from New Hampshire, who's filed legislation to promote civics education in my home state. Dr. Laura Hammock, a superintendent from rural Indiana, whose former school district won a national contest promoting civics education. And the hosts of Civics 101, Hannah McCarthy and Nick Capodice. The team behind this popular NPR show and podcast have done as much as anyone to promote the importance of civics the past five years, with 230 episodes and counting. Some teachers have told me why it was quickly sort of adopted into schools quite quickly after the show was created, like 46 episodes in, was because there was an absolute dearth of nonpartisan civics material on the audio waves. So teachers could play this without fear that they'd be viewed as supporting one side or the other about these very hot button topics and issues. And we still strive for that. Please join us then, and meantime, subscribe to our newsletter, Purple Principle in Print, which dives deeply into important topics like civics education. It also helps out a whole lot if you like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. You'll find all of these links in our show notes and at our website, purpleprinciple.com. This has been Robert Pease and the new yet already impressive co-host Jillian Youngblood for the Purple Principle team. Allison Byrne, producer, Kevin A. Klein, senior audio engineer, Emily Holloway, director of digital ops, Dom Scarlett and Grant Sherritt, research associates, and Emma Trujillo, audio associate. Our resident composer is Ryan Adair Rooney. The Purple Principle is a Fluent Knowledge production.